Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Catherine Demet is the VP of Marketing at Narvar, the leader in post-purchase experiences. She oversees all aspects of Narvar's marketing. One of her passions is building diverse teams and advancing women in the workforce. Catherine holds her BA from Boston University and has worked in senior marketing positions at several tech companies, including Grapeshot, which was acquired by Oracle, NetMining, Ignition One, and Zeta Global. She is also the former co-president of Embolden, or Women in Wireless, in New York. Welcome to the Hazard Girls podcast, Catherine. Thanks, Emily. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Well, I'm too, and finally a woman in tech, because we have all kinds of women in male-populated industries on this show. We have lots of engineers and women in construction and architects and tradeswomen, but we really haven't had many women in tech, in the tech space. So I'm very excited to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, we're excited to learn from you. You've worked from for several different tech companies. And I'm just curious, you know, what is the climate like for women? Is is it, does it have that male populated, we like to say male populated, does it have that male populated vibe? Oh, boy, does it ever. Um, I think <laughs> most of my career at these tech companies, I have been one of the only women in the room, really kind of leading up to and reinforcing that stereotype, unfortunately. I'd say that I am just now at a company where that balance is healthy. But yep, unfortunately, that stereotype is true through and through across the tech landscape. So I belong to, because of my company, Juno Jones, I belong to all different kinds of like different Facebook groups that I get a chance to know women in all these different industries, also for the podcast, of course. And I'm in a bunch of groups for women in tech. And a lot of the complaints in there really are about this like bro culture I think it carries over a lot into the whole like, you know, female founders and startup world too. So I I have my own perspective on that as well. I'd like to hear, you know, what for you, like what challenges have you faced and how have you, you know, gone about addressing them? Yeah, I mean, the bro culture is definitely something, unfortunately, that is very prominent across the board. And I think I felt it more when I was early on in my career I was green and I didn't necessarily know that I could combat it, that I had the power within myself to make myself feel more comfortable. I think the struggle of being a 22-year-old woman coming out of college, I was an SDR. That was my first job ever. So like tech sales, that is a male populated field. I was one of like 30 people in my weekly meetings. And like, unfortunately, you have a lot of toxic behavior that goes on at that age. No one knows better. A lot of times there's not more seasoned talent in the room to combat some of the toxic behaviors. You're saying like everyone's that age, like the majority of people in the room are in their twenties. I would say so. That is like, that's the bread and butter of like 
some of these hot tech companies, they it's like a very fast turnover. They want talent in, talent out, quick to fire, quick to hire, which also isn't super healthy. We can probably all admit. <laughs> but nonetheless, it's really difficult, like being young, not knowing that this is not okay. It's not across the board accepted. And you think that this is what you're going to encounter the rest of your life. And so I would say that early in my career, you know, there were a couple of years there, I really struggled, where like, you just have this nonstop imposter syndrome, and you read about it, and you see all these women that are more advanced in their career. And you're like, how did they get there? How did they find the confidence to like, feel comfortable in the room? Like, I really struggled with finding my voice. I was so intimidated. I have some horror stories too, that like, definitely did not help my confidence. And it wasn't until I left some of those toxic cultures and finally found better management that really supported women, minority groups that had been oppressed and helped those folks find their voices that I felt comfortable really coming to the table and contributing. So much to unpack there. Um, So I guess my first question is, you mentioned that that because the room was filled with so many people of the same generation, the younger generation, there wasn't that like voice of reason. Do you think that the people of the older generations, I assume the culture, you know, when back in their day, when they were starting out was even worse maybe than, than it is today. So how could they be the voice of reason? You know what? I totally get that because I was in advertising technology, right? So like you have that stereotypical like mad men backbone of the industry. And it's funny because you're like, okay, these older generations, like they were way worse. Like harassment in the workplace was just so often overlooked. And it's so horrifying to think about. But I think as the years have gone on and there have been more laws that have been put in place and they've had the little slaps on the wrist, they've gotten better and better not necessarily being more educated, nor really, and this is so horrible to say, but not necessarily supporting these groups, but they're just better about keeping it tight-lipped and keeping things in order more so. Now, I will say, I feel like in the past like five to six years, I have seen a lot more progress across the board. Like I am so in awe of Gen Z and the power that they have held to really promote progress in all capacities when it comes to equality. And I feel like we're finally coming to like this middle ground in the workplace where bro culture is really like not accepted across the board. Like there's always going to be that probably in groups that are perhaps male populated, but we're just now finding some equal weighting in the workforce. I'm feeling. Yeah. Hmm. And you know, it's funny, you are crediting Gen Z and me as a Gen Xer, I'm crediting the millennials. (laughs) You know, I feel like things have really improved since the millennials kind of came into their own and the the whole Me Too movement. I mean, gosh, the last, the last, like you said, five or six years has seen so much progress. I think the millennial generation was definitely a catalyst for change. And what I'm seeing right now, and this is just ridiculous what I'm about to say, but I don't know if you, but during the pandemic, I got on TikTok and I'm not a creator, but I really love to consume the content that is on there and really like seeing these younger voices, what they stand for, what they're passionate about. And I feel like the progress that they have made in evoking change across the board these larger organizations, it's just incredible. They really push the boundaries, which 
to a certain extent, we need to probably reel them in a little. But when it comes to equality in the workforce or, you know, being able to bring your most authentic self to work, I think they're really helping us. That's such a good point about authenticity. I think that generation is unapologetic about they are who they are. This is me. Of course, you're going to accept me in the workplace. It's almost a given. You know, it's a whole different attitude and I love it. And I think, yeah, I think it really does bode well for the future. Well, you know, I'm a little bit interested. Well, I'm very interested in hearing more about your journey. How did you end up in tech? Because I read that you, you started out in hospitality, getting your degree in hospitality. Yeah. So I went to college thinking that I wanted to end up being a wedding planner. So I joined the hospitality program at Boston University. And during that time, I was in a really interesting class that was flashing all of the different types of technology that's in back of house at hotels, restaurants, et cetera. And it really excited me. So right out of college, I got a job at a hospitality SaaS company as an SDR. And I mean, I sat there for probably three, four months every day making 100 plus cold calls. And let me tell you, prior to that job, rejection was one of my worst fears. Then you get on the phone and you hear no like 96 times a day. And you're like, oh, please, this is a piece of cake now. Like it really helps empower you kind of bring yourself to new opportunities and whatnot without the fear of failure, if you will. So I was doing that for a few months. I advanced to a sales managerial role, which was fantastic. But I realized like very early on, and this is horrible to say, I was like, you know, this is too easy. I was sitting in the room, you know, yes, I was intimidated by all of them and around me, but I was consistently the top performing rep. And I was like, well, now that I've reached the top of this, like what's next? And so I was thinking like, what's more creative? What can I be like more data-driven and strategic with? And so I made the move to marketing. And very quickly realized the industry I was in was a little bit too static for me. I wanted something a lot more dynamic. So I moved into ad tech, which was a crazy time. I think I got in right at the height of ad tech. And these budgets, these people were like, it was a wild, wild world at that time. What do you mean by right at the height of ad tech? What year was this? And why was it the height? So I would say this was 2015. This is when a lot of ad tech companies were just emerging. You had a lot of acquisitions just starting to take place with the consolidation really being accelerated over the next five years. And it was just unbelievable. These companies that may have like a workforce of like 20, 30 people having marketing budgets that were like, five, $10 million. They were hosting insane parties on yachts in New York City, penthouse parties. Like I'll never forget. Emily, I went to this one. It was unbelievable. They had this beautiful woman come in and create these beautiful floral head crowns. And like everyone got donned with them. And then you could go in and then they would read your profile and make you a custom cocktail. And it was so over the top. What company was this? I was at Grape Shot, which was acquired by Oracle, but the company that was hosting at the time was a company called Index Exchange. And if you have been in ad tech, you would have heard of Index Exchange. They were crazy at this time. They had a spinoff company that was like all unicorn themed and they would host like warehouse parties in Brooklyn, which like, as you can imagine with that kind of party culture, it definitely fuels unhealthy behavior. It really fuels that toxic culture. And you think it's all flashy and exciting. And so there's this balance. You're like, oh, I think this is interesting. I think I really like doing this. But on the other hand, 
you're constantly up against harassment or you're up against just kind of belittlement or whatnot. And so I realized at one point I was in a really horrible place and I needed to make a change. And so I decided to make a move to a company that was founder led. I'll never forget. I walked into the room and I met this co-founder chief product officer over at net mining and ignition one, which were two companies under the same umbrella. And he was so welcoming. He was so supportive. It felt like home the second I sat down and I was like, wow, it's like, is this something that's been possible this entire time? And I walked away from that interview and I was like, I will do anything to work at this company because it feels healthy. I could feel myself feeling psychologically safe there and being able to be my most authentic self, being able to create and build a team that would in fact have impact. And I had never felt that before, unfortunately. And it took me encountering a really good leader to understand what else was out there. And fortunately, I got the job and was able to see what a good leader really looks like day in and day out, what a healthy workplace can look like. And I will never go back. Yeah. So when you talk about the culture and how it was such a safer place and a more welcoming place, you're crediting the leader, the leadership, really, the, it sounds like one person who was the leader. I mean, do you think that it really is dependent on one person in a company to create that environment? I don't think it's fair to say that one person can necessarily control culture, but I do think that culture comes from the top down, especially with these founder-owned, founder-led companies. If you don't have some sort of desire or intention to create a safe workplace, it's not going to happen. So I think you need to have that mutual understanding across the executive team, and ultimately it will trickle down. If you don't have that buy-in across the board, you're doomed. And what are the key elements, would you say, of that welcoming environment that they're creating? I know you've talked a lot about diversity, but can you expand on that a little bit and explain maybe what some of those elements are? Yeah, I mean, obviously diversity, ensuring that we're putting that at the forefront to make sure there's a variety of different voices. So you're not walking in a room and seeing a ton of people that look just like one person. I think there's this other element of engagement where the leaders really need to take an active step to making sure their employees feel heard and also have this element of access to them. I have found so often, if you have an executive that limits the access to the employees and kind of just puts themselves on a pedestal, and although they may have somewhat good intentions, it's just never going to connect. So you really need to have that kind of open path, that open lane, if you will, into management, into your employees. So it feels like a two-way street. I was reading this thing the other day around psychological safety at work, and it really resonated with me where it was like, you need to ensure that all employees, no matter if they are your direct reports, all the way down to like coordinators, interns, they need to feel comfortable. And the way that you can do that is by actively listening, by actively, you know, it could be something as simple as sending a Slack being like, hey, I saw that creative you worked on that was posted on LinkedIn last week. Great job. I think recognition is such a key piece. And it doesn't need to be this massive grand gesture. It can be something as simple as a thank you note. But having that and also kind of having that recognition embedded into how you operate as a leader, I think is so important, which ties into kind of like my fourth thing around gratitude. I'm a huge cheerleader of kind of maintaining gratitude across the board in my personal and professional life. And I really have found there's a lot of power and positivity. 
And if you have that, and if you have passion, you will totally empower and inspire your work staff. And I think being able to have people show up every day inspired, who are diverse, that feel recognized, that feel heard, feel seen, creates a really nice culture where people feel comfortable being themselves. And so you're a leader within your organization and part of your, well, I know part of your passion, huge part of your passion is to build these diverse teams. You know, how do you, how do you bring in the talent? How do you attract that diversity and how do you ensure their comfort and ensure that this is a workplace they want to be in and want to stay in? Well, I think first and foremost, you have to have the right drawing board, if you will. So at my current company, Narvar, looking at the executive team, majority is women and people of color, which is fantastic to see. It starts at the top. I've been at my last company that I was at, unfortunately, was all white, like bald men. And when you have candidates that are going to the website and they see these faces of the company, they're not going to feel comfortable. Like it starts at the top. They need to see some sort of representation. And if you don't have that representation today, showcase how you're going to, or how you're dedicating resources to get to that point. If you don't have those two pieces, it's going to be really difficult to attract diverse talent. I think beyond that, also just maintaining a voice across the industry and constantly engaging different types of people. You don't necessarily need to always be like on LinkedIn trying to recruit people. You can just connect with people and try to open conversations with different types of people and open those lanes of communication. And as you build your network, a lot of times diverse talent will come to you because you've expanded your own, you know, little bubble of people that may look just like you. You've actively taken that approach. And that's, I think the key word is you need to be proactive. You need to actively look. People aren't going to come to you, especially when we're in this huge, I would say like last year and a half boom where a lot of these big tech companies have invested a lot in diversity and equity programs. So you're competing with some of these large giants like Facebook, I'm sorry, Meta, and (laughs) Google, and you have Tesla, like you have all these sexy names. And so you have to be able to differentiate yourself. And to a certain extent, if you're in a smaller company, you can really showcase how the proof is in the pudding, if you will. Is Narvar, is it female founded? It is not. It is founded by our CEO, Amit Sharma. He was born and raised in India. He came to the States, kind of that American dream, worked for Apple and Walmart. He was sent back to India, like essentially lost his house and really worked for a few years trying to build what ultimately would become Narvar. And he was able to move back. And he is such a big cheerleader for diversity in the workplace. It's like, in our DNA. And it's so great to see someone, a man in particular, just like cheerlead for women, like left and right. I am constantly in awe when I hear him talk about female leadership. And then you landed at Narvar, which is extremely interesting to me as the founder of an e-commerce brand. Can you tell us what Narvar is and how you improve customer service experience? So we work with the world's best brands to help power post-purchase customer experiences. So the second that you buy your new favorite top online from Lululemon, we're helping power Lululemon's emails to you saying, hey, you know, your order has been confirmed. It's going to arrive in three to four business days. We have found that proactively communicating kind of just like that customer service one-on-one is imperative in the customer experience post-purchase. I think a lot of retailers have nailed CX in person 
But digitally, especially over the last two years when we've seen a boom in digital transformation, has been imperative that you have a post-purchase solution in place. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because when I was looking at Navarro's website and I was seeing all the different companies that you work with, there's like over a thousand, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's all the companies that are so modern that I shop at that I, in, and I just, I have such a high esteem of these companies like Glossier and Away. And, you know, some of these female founded companies are on there as well. So I, I think that's great. Yeah, it's really fun. And it's a nice perk getting some discounts. <laughs> Well, that explains how the company became what it did with the female and diverse leadership at the top. So interesting. And I think, you know, in a lot of the industries of the women I talk to, we always talk about male allies and how important they are. But really, I mean, because these industries are so male populated, we need that. We need that friendship. We need that support. We need that mentorship from men. We Yes, it's great for women to support each other. And that's extremely important. But we also... We, in order to advance, we really need that support of the men. So it's great to hear that about your company. When you're in a meeting, so I know your new company, it's a little bit different. And it's great to hear that, but you have a lot of experience with different tech companies. When you're in a meeting and the feeling in the room is that you are a minority, you don't look like most of the people there, maybe you, you're getting that bad vibe of, you know, of maybe not being taken as seriously or listened to. How do you counter that? Like, how do you assert your place? What advice can you give to women who are finding themselves in that position? So I would say preparation is key. I took a play from Michael Phelps in the Olympics. And you remember, I don't know if you remember this. Like when he used to go swim, he'd have his big headphones on. And he'd be listening to like Eminem to pump him up. I found doing something similarly prior to going into these meetings to essentially pump myself up subconsciously would really help. So my best friend during those really tough times was Nicki Minaj and Cardi B to really help pump me up. I also did some like really kind of cheesy stuff that you're like, oh, I don't know if this is actually going to work. Like the power poses to really help build your confidence. So like you may have seen me six, seven years ago in like a bathroom stall at my company, like raising my hands up, doing the power pose help myself feel a little bit more confident going into the room. I think you have to prepare yourself. Like you're, I don't want to say you're going into battle, but like you are going into an uncomfortable situation. You want to make yourself feel more comfortable so that when you do speak up, you do feel like you are saying what points you may want to get across. And so that preparation is so important. And then also just kind of like consistently reminding yourself, fake it till you make it. You know, I, I know that is so It is so cliche, but like if you have someone that is going to speak over you, double down, fake it till you make it, fake that confidence. Don't retreat back into your shell. I think it's so important to double down there. And even if you're not comfortable, just fake it. Because honestly, I feel like I started doing that for years. And then it finally, top of all of this other work, I was like, okay, you know what? You're going to interrupt me. I'm going to pull a Kamala Harris, and I'm going to literally just kind of flee you away and get back to my point so that I still have the stage. Okay, that's good advice. And then what do you do if you find yourself, so you say something, and then you find that someone else, a man, repeats the exact same thing you just said, but is saying it as if it were his idea? Yeah, so I've had this happen quite a bit. And what essentially I have probably verbatim said I'd be like, that's a great idea, Joe. I'm glad I raised it. Thank you for reinstating it. Like, I will give myself the credit back. You have to be your 
first and foremost, your own cheerleader. No one else is going to, okay, there may be people that will do it, but you really need to believe in yourself, be your own cheerleader first and foremost. That's such a good point. I'm glad I raised it. That's so genius. I love that. That's a good one. Are you in the Hazard Girls group? You have to join if you're not, because we have like sort of an ongoing list of responses and things that we... Oh, really? Yes. We'll have to add that to the list. It's a fun one to say. Having a man hear that for the first time, seeing their reaction is priceless. Okay. I want to just touch on a little bit about leadership because you went from really management positions into leadership. What is the difference, in your opinion, between being a manager and being a leader? And how can one transition from one to the other? I think this is one of those things that you you don't necessarily realize when you first become a manager. You kind of think like, oh, I now I'm in a management position. I'm automatically a leader. And I think we all get that notion from, or we don't get that notion from previous management we may have encountered. I think I had a come to Jesus moment one day where I was coaching someone on my team and I, nothing was like getting through to him. And I was just like, why isn't this working? And I went home and I was like doing a lot of research and I forget what I found, but it was the whole thing around how leaders inspire and how I really needed to take a step back and how leaders are the ones that are equipping their direct reports with the confidence, with the resources to get everything done that the group needs to get done. And so I think there's this really large narrative around inspiration, how you inspire and understanding people on your team, what motivates them. And so I think that's the biggest difference, I would say, between being a manager and a leader. If you are leading your team, you're going to get probably like 50% more out of them because they're going to be excited to show up every day. They're going to buy into the mission of the company. They're going to be excited about what they're working on. When you're excited, you want to do more, 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 more. You're thinking about it more diligently. And so I think you need to to inspire and you need to excite. And that's kind of always been my own like philosophy since my come to Jesus moment. And I've seen it work really well. That's exciting. And you have also experience in volunteer or nonprofit type positions. Can you tell us a little bit about the organization you were working with, Embolden or Women in Wireless? Yeah. So that organization, I think was founded probably 15 years ago at this point. I came in at a pivotal point where some of the leadership had turned over and they were trying to figure out like what's next. And so I just created kind of a spinoff, if you will, of really small groups where women could come together and we could talk about challenges that we may be having. We brought in a woman, Rand Hauser, who is the author of The Myth of the Nice Girl, to speak. And we just created kind of all of these different programs that either educated, engaged, or recognized female talent in New York, which was so exciting. And ultimately, the group went on to be acquired by She Runs It, which is a very large group here in New York in the advertising base. But it was really rewarding to have these groups of 30, 40 executive and junior level women coming together and mutually sharing their experiences and learning from one another. And I think when you can do that, it feels, it just feels really good. You walk away, you put your head down on the pillow for the night and you're like, wow, I feel like today we made a difference. We learned, we're moving forward. That's great. And what are your plans for the future? I know, you know, you're in leadership at your company, but what are your, I guess, goals within your company and also just your plans in general? Yeah. So my goals within my company, hyper growth. We are growing faster than I thought we would prior to my arrival. I am really dedicated to bringing in more diverse talent on the marketing side of things, really empowering folks. 
I'm trying to stand up employee resource groups alongside my HR team. So when I say employee resource groups, I'm thinking women of Narvar or perhaps, you know, a Latinx group, LBGQTIA plus group, just to ensure that the talent that we do have can come together, can collaborate, can share thoughts and, you know, educate one another, feel comfortable making sure that everyone is bringing their most authentic self to work and celebrate it. I think in the future for me, what I would really love to do, and this is definitely off my career path, is open up a female-founded, female-run recruitment agency uh, to really power females in leadership across all different types of sectors. I love that. And where can our listeners find you? Keep following your career and maybe get in touch with you if they need to. I am very active on LinkedIn. So if you just search Catherine Dummett, I will pop right on up. Okay, that's great. Catherine Dummett, VP of Marketing at Narvar. Thank you so much for sharing your perspectives with us today. It has been so great to have you on the show. We love having a woman in tech with us. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Emily. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.